0: I'd graduated from high school, and one of those songs came out that sticks in your brain. It's an obnoxious sound that once you get it in there, you can't get rid of it. Have you heard songs like that, and they nag you all day long? Okay, I'm going to ruin your day and put it into your... more time. Get it in your brain. Now let it kind of fade out. Who are you? you? By The Who. It came out in 1978. Uh, I don't know exactly what they were thinking of when they wrote the song. Um, I'm not sure they knew what they were thinking of when they wrote the song. But I can tell you that the chorus is one that once you get it in your brain, it does not leave very easily. And I hope it's stuck in your brain because I want it to stay there for a while. We're talking about Paul's anthropological terms. In other words, the terms that Paul used when he talked about what a human is. Who are you? What are you? What makes you, you? What is particularly you? Ask yourself the question, not just now, but as that song reverberates in your brain for probably the next two to three days. Who are you? What makes you, you? What, what, what is it? Oh, you might say it's just basic identification stuff. I am my passport number, my driver's license number. I am my fingerprint. You can do my fingerprint. It's me and it's not anyone else. Okay, well, that's on a surface maybe who you are. You know, my name is William Mark Lanier. That's who I am. But I'm not talking about identification. Uh, I, I'm talking about who are you in a deeper sense, I saw a TV show the other day and the husband was not uh, behaving the way the wife thought the husband should behave and they were confronting that issue through dialogue as she said to him, who are you anyway? Not asking his name rank and serial number, asking a little, you know, just questioning his actions. Who are you anyway? Do I even know you? Who are you? That can be a philosophical question. The philosophers, there's a, a an area of philosophy, of personal identity, trying to identify what it means to be a person and, and who are you? You know, I ask myself that well, what makes Mark Lanier Mark Lanier? Is it my physical body? Am I, okay, this collection of atoms? Is that what Mark Lanier is? If so, if I chop off my arm, am I less Mark Lanier? Or wouldn't I still be Mark Lanier? Would my arm lying over there on the ground be part of Mark Lanier if it were no longer attached to my body? So do we say that I'm everything but my arm? Well, no, because if I chopped off a toe, we'd probably say the same thing. That used to be Mark Lanier's toe. But that's not Mark Lanier anymore. Mark, I'm still me. So maybe I'm not simply my physical body. Maybe I'm my brain activity. I'm the synapses that are firing and the neurons that are connecting. I'm this conglomeration, as, as Hercule Poirot said, my gray cells. You know, am, am, am I simply this concept? If so, and my brain activity should cease, if I should be brain dead, is that when it's okay and appropriate to pull the plug because I'm gone? Who am I? Am I simply firings of the brain? Am I a replicating DNA chain? Are we going to get real scientific and say what I am is a certain DNA chain that, that continues to replicate itself over and over and over? And that's what's in your brain and that's what's in your body. And you're this collection of this DNA chain having its way with the world. And when the DNA chain stops replicating and that DNA which is there dissolves or degrades, at that point do I cease to exist? Well, if I'm a replicating DNA chain, then I guess if we cloned me and took the exact DNA and and made a new entity, would that still be me? Or wouldn't if cloning of humanity were something that could be done, and I don't know if we're there yet scientifically or not, but I think we're close. If someone were able to clone me, don't gag, If someone were able to clone me, Becky's breaking out in a cold sweat, um, wouldn't in my brain, I mean, I'm still me, that's my clone. But that's not me. I got to be more than a, a replicating DNA chain. Am I the part of me that's conscious, that's aware Was it Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am? Cogito ergo sum. Because I I think. The conscious awareness of me. If so, where do I go when I go to sleep? I've got to be more than just the conscious me. I've got to be more than what's self-aware. Maybe I'm some combination of these things. Maybe I'm a uh, uh, part of, of body and part DNA, part conscious, part subconscious, part brain activity, part lack of brain activity, who knows? Who am I? Let me go with another step. Am I what I perceive me to be? Or might I be something different? As a Christian, I can tell you, I think God sees me differently in some ways than I see myself. I see in a mirror dimly. So am I who I perceive me to be? Or am I something more? Uh, in, In about 30 or 40 years ago, there were these two guys who were trying to deal with uh, issues of self-understanding and self-disclosure and they came up with what's been called let's see if I can make this fit a Johari window and it's used for understanding yourself it's, Johari is spelled like that window it's used for understanding yourself it's also used for understanding others and I've messed it up by writing there so I have to do it again the Johari window says that there is there are four rooms, and this is what I know. Um, this is what I don't know about me, because there are things about me I just don't know. These are, this is a room what others know about me, and this room is what others don't know. And the Johari window says, there are things I know about myself that others know about me. I know I'm wearing this coat. And if you're watching, you know that I'm wearing this coat. I know that I'm a lawyer. If you've listened to me much, you know that I am a lawyer. There are things that I know about myself that you know as well. There are some things I don't know about myself, but others do. I think for example, there are certain weaknesses I have as a person that I may not recognize about myself, but you take my family or my close friends who know me well and they probably see weaknesses in me that I don't see. Make sense? These windows now, maybe you can help fill in. There are things I know about myself that others don't know. And I, whoops, what did I do? I moved it. There are things I know about myself that others don't know. And I could tell you those, but then I'd have to move them up to this window. (laughs) There are things I don't know about myself that others don't know either. The unknown window, as it's called, in the Johari window. See, there are lots of things that, uh, do I really know who I am fully? All right, let's say I'm a person. Let me ask you this. What's a person? When does someone become a person? Is it the moment the sperm enters the ovum? Does that make a person? Is it the moment the DNA chains chains intertwine? Is it a moment of conscious awareness? What makes a person a person? An expanded version of, who are you? Compare us to some of the fossils that have been found. This is not a commentary on evolution or lack thereof. I'm just saying, what makes me a person as opposed to someone, whether in history or someone currently... Who seems to have very close to my DNA structure but doesn't quite? Be they orangutan, chimpanzee, or Australopithecus. What makes a person a person? Do you see how this starts to become relevant? This becomes relevant on a lot of different levels. This becomes relevant on the issue of abortion. This becomes relevant on the issue of cloning. This becomes relevant on the issue of euthanasia or mercy killing. This becomes important on the issue of of humanity. It becomes important on the issue within our church structure. Let me ask you this. We just finished Pastor's... Uh, a long series on the end times, which has got the resurrection kind of buzzing in some of our heads. Let me ask you this. Does who we are make a difference in what God resurrects? There was a period in church history where the really big thing was to get the burial spot closest to the church. You can go back in some graveyards that are built around churches and find the people who really lobbied hard to get either in the church or just right outside the door figuring they'd be physically closer to Jesus at the resurrection. Because wherever their body is, that's where they're being resurrected from. And they want to be as close to the church door as they can. Does God resurrect the physical body? If so, is it wrong to cremate? Is he going to... You know, it's going to put him through a lot more work. What? Who? Okay, I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to have a a new body, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15. Well, what does he mean? Who is going to... Am I going to have my consciousness? Am I going to be aware of other people? Am I going to have... Uh, you know, I, 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 Well, I finally like mushrooms and onions. You know, who are you? Well, now some people are sitting there saying body, soul, and spirit because that's real big now in evangelical circles, certain ones. Though I'm not sure it's necessarily the fullest view that we should have. We will be exploring that as we go through this. But if you're sitting there saying, well, there's the outer man and the inner man, there's the body and there's the soul. Now, we're not Platonists. We're not going to say that the body's the prison house of the soul. But, you know, this stuff exists. Let me ask you, if you're more than your physical body, if there's something more than simply the firing of the electrons and the chemistry and the muscle memory and all that you are physically, if there's something more then does your physical body, provide a geographic limit to that additional part of you in other words can your spirit leave your physical body can the immaterial step outside of the material whether in space or in time can you project or can you be projected into the future into the past into another place If what you are is more than simply physical, what is it that tethers that addition, non-spiritual part, to the physical body, if anything? Well, these are the questions that may crop up in your brain as you think over the next few weeks, few days. Who are you? Who, 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 who? Let's ask Brother Paul. Brother Paul, what do you have to share with us on who I am? Paul writes, and he doesn't write a philosophical or a medical dissertation, but through the influence of guidance and, and hand of God's Holy Spirit, Paul writes what the church and the Spirit have given to us as Holy Scripture, a number of passages that give us insight into some of these questions because these are passages where Paul speaks of different aspects of who we are as humans made in the image of God and those are the words that we're going to be covering during the next segment of our Paul's theology class. These scholars call his anthropological terms. Anthropos being the Greek word for man. These are the terms Paul uses when he talks about what it is to be a human. What are the terms? He uses the word heart. That's the word we'll discuss this morning. He uses the word body, Greek, soma. And that's a word that we'll be covering in the weeks to come. He uses the word flesh, sarx. Flesh, for Paul, is different than body. I hope to be able to cover both of those terms in one week so we can see some of the distinction. But what does Paul mean when he talks about your flesh versus what Paul means when he talks about your body? When Paul says we're going to have a resurrection body. When Paul talks about the body of Christ using the same word, soma. What does Paul mean as he deals with those terms? What does he mean by flesh? What does he mean by soul? Paul uses the Greek word psuche, which means soul. What does he mean when he writes of your soul? What does he mean when he writes of your pneuma, of your spirit, of your breath? Because Paul will write of that also. Paul will write about your mind, your nous in the Greek. What does he mean when he writes about your mind? It's interesting, as we'll see in a little bit... The Old Testament has a... There's a Hebrew word, lave, which means heart. It's the way it's generally translated. But when the Greek translators of the Old Testament, who preceded Paul by a hundred years or so, they took that Hebrew word and used multiple Greek words for it. And Paul does the same. Paul talks about your mind different than he talks about your heart. And we'll discuss what he means by that. What about conscience? That's a word Paul seems to be borrowing from the Greeks. He talks about your conscience. The importance of a clear conscience and a good conscience. And what what is that? What does it mean to us? Paul uses these phrases for the inner man and the outer man. And so these are all wonderful terms that are rich in meaning that it's important for us to learn and it's fun for us to study because they really help us understand and answer those questions relevant to who are you? Who, 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 who? Um, Now, so you want to study this maybe. Let me give you some ideas on how to do it. I can think of three good ways to go about studying this. One is just go through each scripture. Just say, okay, I'm going to find a good concordance that lists all the words in the Bible and I'm going to see every time the word heart is used by Paul and I'm just going to write them down on a column and I'm going to study those passages and I'm going to come to some good conclusions. I'm going to find every time Paul uses the word mind, I'm going to write them down, da-da-da-da-da. Okay, that's going to be a lot of work. Be very rewarding, be very fruitful. I would encourage you to do it. But it's one option. Here's a second option. There are some really good books where scholars have done option one. And you can go read some of those books. Now, those books come from people all over the, the map on religious thought and theology. Uh, one of the first guys to do this was a fellow named Rudolf Bultmann, who, who was a Lutheran scholar in Germany. Um, uh, you can read his introduction to the New Testament. He dedicates a fierce amount of of stuff to this. I've given you the information in the footnotes, but I'll tell most of you who listen to this class regularly or who are in here that it's not the kind of book you're really going to feel comes from where you are because Bultmann's biggest contribution was the way he tried to demythologize Jesus and try to find Jesus in the midst of these scriptures that he believed have all sorts of errors and problems in them. So he's not the kind of source you really want to go to until you're very clear, you understand where he's coming from as you try to read it. But there's a book by a fellow named Stacy that I think everybody in this class would love. You can buy a used copy somewhere maybe. There's a book, David Stacy, I've got the site down there. He dedicates a chapter to each one of these terms. There's a book by a fellow named Robert Jewett. Uh, called Paul's Anthropological Terms. That's a good thorough book. It's a hard, difficult read, I'll warn you. But it's 400 pages of good material. You can study those books as an option to doing it. Not as good as option one, but an option. And then there's a third way. Come to class. (laughs) Because I'll try and do one and two and give you the Reader's Digest version each Sunday morning. So uh, uh, come on, bring some friends. These are fun classes. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I believe the scripture teaches. If you disagree with me, that's okay. You may be right, I may be wrong. I'm just telling you where my studies have led me. And I'll try to give you a good handout that's got some good citations, but it's a good chance these will make wonderful Sunday afternoon discussion points or discussion points at work. So if you've got some friends that aren't plugged into a church or aren't plugged into a Sunday school class, these are ideal classes because these will be fun to talk about afterwards and say, hey, what do you think about this? So with that, we're going to study the first word this morning, and that word is heart, heart. And We will do that now. But I got to give you a warning. Here's your warning. When Paul writes, sometimes a word that he uses does double duty or even triple duty. Be cautious of someone who ever puts together a religious teaching based on the mathematical principles of substitution. Oh, since Paul uses the word heart here, it must mean the exact same thing over here. It doesn't always work that way. That's why we read scripture in context and try to study in context passages and words. And it's, it's no different when we use the word heart today. I can talk to you about the heart this morning and what Paul has to say about it. And I could mean the physical heart, boom, 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 boom. Because we have that organ in our chest. If you're a Time Lord in the Doctor Who series, you have two hearts. I just throw that out because some of you may not know. It's one of the easier ways to identify them, by the way, if you have a stethoscope. But we have a heart beating in our chest. Boom, 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 boom. Or I could show you my sweetheart, Becky. Becky. Because she's my sweetheart. That doesn't make me the sour heart. That doesn't mean that she's the part of my heart going boom, 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 boom so sweetly, though she does make my heart beat like a big bass drum. See, we have these expressions we use. You remember this? Non believers all along the way. I have one thing to say to those non believers don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. Don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion, Coach Rudy said. Well, he doesn't mean don't underestimate how efficiently Hakeem Elijahwan's heart is pumping the blood. And you might watch the sports show where the team gives up and the announcer says, ah, they've lost all heart. Well, they didn't all flop down on the ground because they had no more blood flow. The word heart can mean different things. If I could help you get who are you, who, 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 who out of your mind, it might be with this. Remember? Who is that? Heart. Heart, the rock band that accompanied Ann and Nancy Wilson. I could say heart and mean that. I can use our English word for a valentine heart. I could use it to talk about heartworms. I could use it to talk about artichoke hearts. I could tell you I learned Hebrew verb conjugations by heart. I could tell you that I've been heartbroken when Texas Tech didn't win the national title. Year after year after year (laughs) after year after year. But it's never been because they were half-hearted. Heart means a lot in our English language. It meant a lot in Paul's language as well. So we've got to be careful as we study this and try to get the richness of it. Oh, that's bad. I didn't do that slide right. We're getting to the heart of the matter here for the word. Heart, our English word. We have the old Norse word, harta. I guess. I don't know how they said it. That's how it's spelled. Harta. I feel like I should have Viking horns while I walk around. I will take your harta and feast upon it. <laughs> That's part of where our English heart comes from. The old German who were close to the Norse had "herza." I will take your herza and feast upon it. Okay? Paul then used that. Paul used the Greek word, cardia. And that's not too far from us. Ask your local cardiologist. Right? Cardia, heart. Cardiologist, heart doctor. So how does Paul use the word? Well, he uses it in a variety of ways. In one passage, at least, Paul uses it in a way where he's talking about a physical heart. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, it's an interesting passage. Paul says, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the Living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, the word that's translated "human" there. See that little footnote four? Here we'll zoom for my wife's eyesight. See that footnote four? You go down to the bottom of the page. Whoops! We'll find footnote four, and it says Greek: fleshy hearts. The Greek word sarx is used there, the word for flesh. And Paul's talking about it and Paul's saying on tablets of, of the fleshy heart, the, the the heart, the physical heart. Not on tablets of stone, but, but on tablets of the human heart. Now, he's not saying that God literally pulled out a heart and wrote it on there, but he's referencing the fact that we have a fleshy heart within us. He's saying deep in my chest, deep in, in my... Who I am, my fleshy heart. Make sense? So we see that Paul has no trouble using heart, knowing it's a physical organ inside your body. But that's not the only way he does it. Paul uses heart to talk about it as the seat of your emotions. Your heart, um, you know, home is where your heart is, we might say. Your heart as the seat of your emotions, is something Paul uses it for. It's something we use it for today. It's something that, that uh, we can find in several passages. We see it, for example, in Second Corinthians chapter two. Let's look at this passage, verse four. In Second Corinthians chapter two, verse four, Paul says, "For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart." See, heart, out of anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul understood that the heart was the seat of the emotions. And when he writes about our heart, he can be meaning that. It was the place within us that we sense and that we feel and that we we, uh, 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 emote from. Not just the emotion there. If you're looking at Philippians chapter 1 verse 7. He's talking about the joy that he has. Thinking about the Philippians. He says it's right for me to feel this way about you. All because I hold you in my heart. see, This is the way he feels as he holds you in his cardia. In his heart. So for Paul the heart is the seat of the emotions. It's where you, you, you feel. Um, have a heart. Uh, you know, I, when, when your spouse looks at you, uh, uh, maybe, and says, I love you. Or when you, let's make it first person, look at your spouse and say, I love you. Or you look at your child, I love you. We're not just saying, you know, it's what we're saying. You know what it means. But what Paul's saying is that proceeds forth from what he's calling the heart. Paul's not messed up. This is not primitive physiology. Paul's not thinking that there is this physical beating thing in your chest, which is where those feelings emanate from. It's not that he's just really primitive in his physiology. What Paul's saying, he's just using the word in the way we use it today. So much English usage of vocabulary is based upon the way vocabulary is used in scripture. And this heart is, is no different from it. Paul So Paul uses it recognizing it's a physical organ, but he also uses it as the seed of the emotions. Paul uses the heart as a place of mental processing. See, we talk about mental processing and sometimes we have a tendency to point up here but for Paul, sometimes it's from the heart. You know, this is heartfelt. This is something he thinks from the heart. Let's look at a couple of passages that give us a sense of Paul using it here. Romans one twenty one is a fascinating one to me because it shows it uh, in, in a couple of perspectives that I, I think are important. Paul's talking here, let's get it into to context. Paul's talking here about... The the people, the pagan world, that did not accept God as God, even though to some degree they had a revelation of God. And Paul says, you know, since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, it's something where every human should be able to perceive something about God. They're without excuse. And then look at verse 21, please. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. In other words, their foolish hearts were darkened. Their hearts were darkened is his phrase for explaining what he means by them being futile in their thinking. Their disobedience and disregard, irregard for God. You ignore God in part of your life. And it will affect how you think in your heart. Now, Paul, Paul has got a whole other word for mind. Okay? This is an important... Oh, we're doing okay time-wise. This is worth a dichotomy here. Let's, let's look at this for just a minute. For Paul, we've got mind. There. And we've got heart. And both of them are part of a thinking process. They are all in the circle of thinking. But for Paul, the mind thinks in an intellectual sense. The heart thinks in a moral... and a spiritual... and a feeling sense. So for Paul... You think with your mind, two plus two is four. But you process with what he calls your heart, right and wrong. And how you feel. And what he's saying then in this Romans passage, that's very important for us to understand as we see this, as Paul writes and says, they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They grew and became steeped in their sin and self-deception. Paul's teaching an anthropological principle that says when you ignore God or you refuse to honor Him as God it affects the way you feel and the way you sense, and the way you process. That's a clear warning, as Paul would say to the Galatians, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever you sow, that also you reap. You spend your time and attention honoring God, thinking about God, dwelling on God, putting Him as God in your life. It will change who you are in your heart. The obverse is true. You ignore him. And it will change who you are in your heart. This is greater understanding now of a prayer we've referenced in this class before. In Ephesians 1.18. Paul's praying for the Ephesians. And he says, Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love towards all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit. And We're going to look at this again when we get to the word spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What kind of knowledge? Intellectual? No. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Paul's praying that they, their knowledge of Jesus not be factual data points but that it be a transforming value system. That it change their heart. Does that make sense? So for Paul, the heart can be a place of mental processing. For Paul, the heart is a place of volition. It's will. It's your, where your willpower is. It's where your deciding factors can be. On places that aren't simply intellectual. Oh, it may be an intellectual decision on the mathematical question 9 minus 5 equals what? But the decision making that counts comes from the heart. Because it's more than simply mental processing. You don't convince someone to put God in their life simply by mentally making it a compelling argument it 's got to reach down and touch into to the heart, as Paul would say, so we see this for example in first uh, Corinthians four verse five look at the way Paul uses it here he says um, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. The purposes of the heart tells us that the heart is the source of of uh, volition. It's 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 where you are. It's your your willpower. It's it's. Look at Paul in Romans seven. Uh, not Romans seven. Where did I pull the Romans from? This is Second Corinthians. I'm sorry, nine verse seven. Second Corinthians nine verse seven. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. Uh oh. Did you know that that word, translated there, mind, is the Greek word? Let's give us some room here. Cardia. That's heart. Because the heart is the place of volition and will. But the translators don't want to get you goofed up. So they use the word mind. That's also one of the reasons if you're really going to do a word study, it helps to do it in the original language. Sometimes they mess with you a little bit just to make you buy more books. Each one... ...must give as he has made up his mind... ...look, this gives us the clue... ...not reluctantly or under compulsion... ...for God loves a cheerful giver. See, Paul's saying you give out of the heart. It's a volition, it's a will, it's a mental processing Either, even... ...but it's out of the heart. He wants a cheerful giver. So it's not as you've made up your mind... ...in a mathematical conscious decision. Paul's saying from your heart is the way you give. Does that make sense? Let's take it a step further because we're going to see that Paul says the heart is not only a place of volition and will, but the heart's the place where you decide to receive or reject God. Passage of scripture Romans 10:9 and 10. Let's see what it says. Romans 10, 9, and 10. We have Paul saying... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart... That God raised him from the dead... You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. With the heart... You see, the heart is a place where you can receive God or where you can reject God. It's it's the the acceptance of God's not just some mental thing in a cold calculated mathematical sense. It's one that involves the core and essence of who you are and how you think in a and how you feel. For Paul, an inward place of life is what the heart is. It's a good word for us to start with our study because it's truly an inward place of life. I'm going to put up Romans 2. How am I doing time-wise? I'm going to go quickly here. You can read it better in the lesson. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. The heart is the inward essence here. So if we go back and we ask the question, Who are you? part of who you are, Paul would say, is the heart. A lot of scholars, and I've set out a number of them in the lesson, say that the heart for Paul, the closest we're going to come to it is, in essence, that thought process within us of who we really feel we are. That real part of us. Don't subjugate it and try to place it physiologically in your body. Except that you are a person and I am a person who has a heart in Paul's sense, and by that he means we have a place where we can make moral judgments, where we can make feelings, where we can make decisions and value judgments, and we truly have an ability to make those decisions and make those judgments. We're not simply chemical soup that has no willpower or volition or ability to change the world or ourselves. We're people who have a heart and in that sense can make decisions, can decide to go left or right. It's not predetermined off of our environment and DNA. There's something within us that allows us to be autonomous in that regard to some degree. So, where does that leave us as we're getting our toes wet this Sunday? Points for home. Paul writes to the Ephesians that he wants Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, think about that for a moment as we head home. If the heart is the essence of who you are, in one sense of Paul's writing, Paul wants Christ to dwell in your heart. Paul says Christ should be part of your decision-making. Should be part of your will, part of your volition, should be part of your value judgments, should be part of what you're thinking and how you're processing and how you're living. Let Christ invade who you are. Next, Paul says in Galatians 4 that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Into our hearts, into that center of who I am, my, my will making, my volition, my, my acceptance or rejectance of God, my value judgment, my seat, my, my inner being, God has sent the spirit of his son into it crying out to God, Abba, Father. Now, you got something inside you that's crying out to God? That's your heart. That's the same part of you that Paul says can decide to accept or reject God. So what are you going to do to that voice? And what are you going to do to that cry? That's our decision. Nobody makes that for you. You make that decision. It's your heart. Final point. The aim of our charge, Paul says, is love that issues from a pure heart. So, this will and volition, and this part of you that can make moral judgments and sits in the seat of morals and ethics and decides to accept God or not, can make a decision to live with a pure heart. Live with direction. Make a decision of how you want, but it's not just a mental decision, it's from the heart. Be wholehearted in this matter. Make a heartfelt decision of how you want to be before the Lord, knowing that He dwells in your heart, He empowers you in your heart, and through His direction and His guidance and His indwelling, you can be who you decide you should be. Another aspect to some lessons, it's very interrelated to so much of what we've said and so much of what will come, so I pray you'll come back for more. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for touching our hearts. I don't understand fully who I am, Lord, but I know you do. And I know what you want me to be is what I want to be. It is my prayer that you will indwell each person who hears this message and that none of us will become darkened in our hearts through ignoring you but we will honor you as God and embrace you as God and hear your cry of your spirit in our hearts and in pure hearts seek to follow you. Thank you, Lord. Through Jesus we pray, amen.